I'm here because Mark is, is away. He and his family are in Oxford, England, and they are having, I bet, a great, great time. It is my delight to be there, though, and I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm so glad for those of you who are watching, uh, whether, whether you're watching today, the 30th day of July 2023, or if you're watching in the future. It is a delight to have you here. I'm going to continue the study that Mark started. Now, what Mark has been talking about is better Bible study, as you know. And so what I want to do is kind of add to and go a little deeper with the context of the book of Matthew. The Bible itself, you know, is a library of books, 66 of them in all. We've got Old and New Testaments. 39 in the Old Testament in Hebrew, same as the Hebrew Bible, though our Bibles are organized a little differently. Just for example, the minor prophets are called the book of the 12. They're collected together differently. And let's say the book of First and Second Kings is one book in the Hebrew Bible. So it's not two books, it's one book there. So it's organized a little bit differently, but it's the same thing as what we have today. And, and we read it, of course, differently because we are Christians and we read it after Christ. We read it after the cross, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to continue that, 27 books in the New Testament today. Now, what Mark has been doing is he's been, he's been showing how certain themes tie together the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to the concordance. All the way. Well, actually, Revelation. We're not going to add the concordance. But it goes all the way, the whole way. And he's taken themes like temple. And last week I think it was exile. And the week before that it was Messiah. And showed how these particular ideas are present all the way through. He's done a masterful job. What I thought I would do today is I was going to take the Emmanuel passage in the book of Matthew. And what we're going to do is we're going to do the same thing that Mark has been doing on a full biblical level to focus in upon one gospel, the gospel of Matthew, and show how that particular theme is woven throughout and is revealed throughout the entire book. So let's take a look at that. We're going to start, first of all, with some backgrounds, and we're going to start with some bookends, all right, backgrounds and bookends. Then we're going to take a look at certain key episodes in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have the Gospel of Matthew, so glad to see Nathan down here. He actually has a physical Bible with him. I love that. It's different than having it on your phone or maybe hiding it in your heart. You got a physical Bible. Thank you, Nathan, for doing that. And key episodes, and you can circle things and you can highlight things in your Bibles if you wish to. That's not a sin, by the way. It's a sin to write in the hymn book, but not in the not in the Bible. Don't don't do that. And then we're going to take some points for home just for everybody there. But again, thank you for being here. Uh, we're going to start with this, backgrounds and bookends. Can we do that? Now, just a few observations about Matthew. Matthew is which gospel in the New Testament? First gospel. How long has it been the first gospel? Goes way, way, way back. In fact, the, the fact that we have Matthew in the first position demonstrates that from the early, early, early churches, I think down to the second century, so maybe 50, 60 years after Matthew was written and after the Gospels are collect, being collected, it, it shows up in lists in the first place. And when we look at the distribution of all of the, the, the text out there, 
what we find is that we have more copies of Matthew, we have more copies of John than we do of Mark and Luke. So it seems to have been a favorite gospel in the early church. Part of that has to do with the fact that the early church began very Jewishly in and around the temple, at least for the first seven, you know, 40 years until the temple's destroyed. So it's, it's, it's first gospel. And, and as, as a friend of mine, Alan Culpepper says, when you think of the gospel of Matthew, think of it as a user's guide, a friendly guide to the church. It's there for us to guide our lives, to guide our collective life together, our, our individual lives, of course, but also our collective lives when we get together uh, and share. Um, the other thing that I want to, just in terms of some background, is that there's a theme in Matthew of the fulfillment of Scripture. You see it over and over again. Now, we see it in the other Gospels as well, but it's more pronounced. It's more indicated in the Gospel of Matthew. And so let me just give you an example. When the Holy Family, when Joseph and Mary and Jesus go down into Egypt and they come back from Egypt, that, Matthew says, fulfills what the Lord said through the prophet. Now, he doesn't say which prophet, but if we know our Bibles fairly well, and he quotes the passage, out of Egypt I have called my son, we realize he's actually quoting one of the not-so-minor prophets, the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. So that becomes pretty clear as we move through it. When we come to the next example, just a few other examples, what we see is that Jesus begins his ministry after he's baptized, after he has his time of temptation. Where does he go? He goes to the wilderness. And then after he goes to the wilderness, what does he do? He goes to Galilee. Now, why doesn't he go to Jerusalem? I mean, Jerusalem is the city of the prophets, right? Jerusalem is the place where it's all supposed to be happening. But in fact, he doesn't do that. He goes to Galilee. And he does that, we're told, to fulfill what was said through the prophet. The prophet Isaiah. If you read prophet Isaiah, some of the early chapters of Isaiah, you realize that Jesus goes there because the scripture has been sort of telling him to go there. This is where the light will begin to dawn. This is where the Lord's kingdom will begin to be announced and pronounced and where it will enter into the world. And so Jesus' ministry is in a way, is the marching orders for Jesus are found in Scripture itself. And we see that in the prophet Isaiah. And here's the passage. Well, it's not there. Let's do the next one. The arrest of Jesus in the garden. It's the very last one in the gospel. When Jesus is arrested in the, in the garden, this takes place, we're told, to fulfill what had been said through the, notice, prophets. Not just one, but many of the prophets. Now, we're left to sort of piece together what that means because Matthew doesn't say more about it at that point. But I'm sure there were people in the early church who had, had been sort of moved to read and reread the text and found many places in the prophets where the suffering and death of the Messiah are according to Scripture. Now, this fulfillment theme, as we're going to see, 
is not just a one direction, one size fits all. There are a lot of different ways that, that the gospel describes the fulfillment of scripture. He takes one pattern. It doesn't take just one pattern. He takes a variety of patterns to do that. David Gooding is a friend of John Lennox. And I got to know his work through John. And he talks about fulfillment. He gives uh, four examples. Fulfillment is bringing about an Old Testament prediction in the life of Jesus. And notice, in the life of the church. Sometimes it's, it's the, the, the apostles and the church that are fulfilling Scripture after Jesus. I think we ought to rename the book of Acts, quite honestly. I've said this before, and I've, I've read it in places by other people. Rather than the Acts of the Apostles, it seems to me that the book of Acts is the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. The way, the way Luke tells that particular story. Jesus continues to act. He continues to be present. The risen and throne Jesus continues to move and direct the church. But he does so through his commissioned authorities, the apostles. So that's one example. Fulfillment as the higher, the final manifestation of some Old Testament uh, principle or idea. That seems to be a pattern as well. Here's two others. Because he gives four. I think there are five. I don't have time for number five. Christ fulfilling the Old Testament law. Now this is a part, part of what we find both in the New Testament, the full New Testament, as well as what we find in some of the early church fathers. And we see it particularly in Matthew and John. But we see it in other gospel writers as well. See it in Paul as well. Christ fulfilling the Old Testament law. And finally, the fulfillment of the Old Testament law by followers of Jesus. Those who have the Spirit, those who are walking in the Spirit, are going to be fulfilling Scripture and doing what Scripture has directed them and guiding them. And we see that present in passages of the New Testament. Well, this idea of Jesus fulfilling, the church fulfilling, the apostles fulfilling, in Matthew, Jesus can fill full the Scripture even when Matthew doesn't say, this took place to fulfill. Often he says that this happened to fulfill. This took place to fulfill. But there are times where Jesus fulfills Scripture even when Matthew doesn't use that particular formula to introduce a quotation. So we'll take a look at some of that in particular with the book of Matthew in just a moment. Finally, this is kind of before we get to the bookends, the title of this gospel, Kata Matayan. According to Matthew, that's how it's come down to us traditionally. Now, this title is not affixed to the gospel in year, the year it was written. We don't know what they called it the first few years, but about the year 125, as all the gospels are collected together into one place, they said, well, this is the one kata Matayan, and this is the one kata Markon, this is the one kata Lukon. And here's the one, Kata Ioane, John. So they, they were given that title. I've, I've puzzled through this because I realize uh, kind of the significance of what we're saying here. Now, the, the common preposition in Greek, some of my Greek students will get this, Kata can mean according to, but it can also mean down from. And it comes from an adverb, Kato. Kato meaning under, uh, uh, underneath, 
or some sort of downward action. It's an adverb, right? Action down. So I take this title, which I think to be authentic to the earliest churches, of saying that this is the gospel that has come down to us through Matthew. Matthew was instrumental in that gospel. Matthew was key to that gospel. And he was one of the original disciples of Jesus. Well, here's the Emmanuel passage that we're going to be looking at. Some of you know it by heart. You've been singing it at Christmas. You know it. You know it so well. But do you know it all the way through the Gospel of Matthew? That's what we're going to be looking at today. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what Matthew is doing here is he's quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and referring to the virginal conception and the virgin birth of Jesus. That's what he's referring to. He said, this fulfills it. And the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel. And, and, and Matthew adds, which means God's with, God is with us. God with us. Now, a friend of ours come to, who's come to lecture at the Linear Library a number of years ago, Richard Hayes, makes this statement. The most distinctive feature of Matthew's narrative Christology is its bold identification of Jesus as the Emmanuel, God with us. The most distinctive feature of it. You see, 50, 60 years ago, people did Christological studies primarily by looking at the titles of Jesus. That was the, the primary way. They, they looked at the, the title Lord and, and Christ and, and Son of God and Son of Man and, and great shepherd and high priest. They looked at those very carefully. That's how Christology was sort of approached. And more recently, we've been looking at the narrative itself, the story itself. How the story itself sort of explains what it means to call Jesus Christ. To call Jesus the Messiah. To call Jesus the Son of God. And that's worked out in the story of Matthew. And Emmanuel is worked out in the story of Matthew as well. But it's the most distinctive feature. Now what you need to know about the prophets is something. Uh, When you look back at the prophets, the prophets had the tendency, not all did this that we know of, but many of them did, to act out, to dramatize their message as well as to speak it. What we read are oracles that were first spoken and then, in some cases, acted out. So here's a good example. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway uh, to the washer's field. So I want you to notice the name Shear Yashuv. That's the name of his son. He's named his son as a prophetic sign. Take a look. What does this name mean? A remnant shall return. This is part of Matthew's message from the very beginning. Shear Yashuv. You wouldn't want to have been one of Matthew's sons. Because he would have named you something funny. Something weird. People in first grade and third grade and middle school would have given you a really hard time. Because you didn't have the normal names that everybody else had, right? You recall something different. The first one, Shear Yashuv, probably, maybe, his oldest son. We don't know. Did he have another son before that? We don't know. 
but one of his early sons is called Shi'ar Yashuv. Here's another one. Got an even longer name. I went to the prophetess. Prophetess here refers to his wife. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. A little bit longer. For before, this is the sign, before the boys know, knows how to say, my father and my mother. So I don't know what the age of that is. What, one to two? They say dada and mama. At that particular point, very quickly, in other words, the wealth of Damascus, Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, Israel, the northern kingdom. They had been warring against them. They had been raids against them. And they were afraid of what was about to happen because they were by far in their allied forces more powerful than what they had in Judah. He said, but you don't need to worry about it. And look at the name, the title of the name. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Swift the booty, speedy the prey. That's what it means in Hebrew. He named his sons as a sign of the message of God to the people in his day, the 8th century B.C. And we have, we are heirs to that. We read about that today. So, and we can look at the prophet Hosea. Hosea did the same thing. Hosea had three children that we know of, maybe others as well. And the first one he named Jezreel. Jezreel had been a city of bloodshed of, of recent days. In our vernacular, it would be like naming a son the Twin Towers. Think about that. Something in our recent memory that reminds us of a terrible, terrible tragedy and loss of life and death and, and a, an attack against us. Jezreel. Second child, a daughter, he named Lo Ruhamah, meaning no mercy. God says, because I'm not going to have mercy on my people. And he, finally, the third one came along, a boy, said, name him Lo-Ami. Ami means my people, not my people. You wouldn't want to have been a child of Hosea either. Because these aren't really pleasant names. They are names of judgment. Shi'ar Yashuv was a positive name. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz was a positive name, but not these names. So the prophets had a habit of naming their children in this particular way as a sign and an extension of their message, an extension of their ministry, if you will. And so we have in the final position, let's see, is it, we're going to work here. Uh, okay, let's try it again. There we go. Okay. Emmanuel. A similar thing is happening, I think, here. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is not a name, apparently, that was, that was well known. It clearly is a theophoric name, meaning the name of God is within it. Emmanuel. God with us is what it means. So what I want to do is to understand what's happening in this particular book. The bookends, as it were. The book begins with Jesus being born and being named, in a sense, prophetically 
as Emmanuel, God with us. And at the very end of the gospel, when Jesus stands on the mountain of commission, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go and make disciples of the nation. How do you do that? You do that by teaching. You do that by baptizing. And then he finally says, last words of the whole gospel. Remember, I am with you always. With you. That idea of God being with us is found throughout the gospel. gospel. Now, in Isaiah's day, in chapter, chapter 7, in, in the 8th century, all that had to mean was that Jesus is here, or the person, Emmanuel, let me say, is here just to remind us that God is among us. Just like one is a promise that a remnant will return and that our enemies will be taken uh, as, as booty and they will be the prey of a greater nation. Positive message. Emmanuel, a positive message. Remember, God is with us. So whenever you saw this person, Emmanuel, all you had to do was think, well, God is with us. This person is a reminder that God is with us. But that's not all it means. There's a higher level, a higher register. And that's what Matthew is trying to play off of. Jesus is more than just a reminder that God is with us. Emmanuel is more than a reminder that God is with us. He is, in fact, in the flesh, God with us. Now, we know that because we are heirs of 2,000 years of church tradition. We've been saying things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and, 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 and having sermons and hymns about that for a long time. But when you're the first Christians to sort of begin sorting this out and figuring this out and seeing, seeing the story told from Scripture, it's really a beautiful thing. Let me show you how it sort of manifests itself here. So we're, our, we're going to look at some key episodes, several key episodes in the Gospels. First of all, it's a wonderful passage, an amazing passage. Called it here, this the way of the Lord. Matthew 3, 3. So just a little bit after the, hey, they're going to call his name Emmanuel. Just a little bit after that. There appears a guy named John the Baptizer. Okay? He's not Baptist. Baptist didn't exist in those days. I know some people think they did, but they didn't. So, John the baptizer appears. Bapt baptizing means to dip in water. So you can call him John the Dipper, if you like. John the Dipper. He is in the wilderness. He is making disciples. He's doing so by proclaiming the kingdom of God and having people repent and be dipped in the water as a, as a sign of their forgiveness of their sins. So what he's doing. And Jesus goes to seek him out. You probably remember much of that story. But here's the passage that is focused upon. It's, in, it's from Isaiah chapter 40. Now the passage, the part of the passage that, he, that he's quoting here is just the tip of the iceberg. Here's what it says. This is he, John. It was spoken by the prophet Isaiah chapter 40. In our chapter 40, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
An amazing passage. Now, let's take a look at that passage just for a moment because I want you to see what it says. Don't just read. When you're reading these contexts, these quotations, don't just read the verse. Read around it, too. It's more than just reading a verse here or there, an isolated verse. Read the whole thing. Now, take a look at what it says. Here's the oracle. This is how it begins. Nahum, Nahum, Ami. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. This is at the end of the exile. Mark talked about exile last week, I think it was. Huge, huge topic in the Old Testament. If there are two events of the Old Testament that are most prominent and that most effectively describe the Jewish people, it is the Exodus and it is the exile. Her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. They've paid their debt to God through the exile. And here's the passage. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Notice here. Well, we'll come back to that. (laughs) Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places of the plain. And notice. Wow. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The oracle continues. We're going to come down here to, uh, wow, verse 9. Verse 9. Go up on the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. This is where the word gospel comes from, by the way. Good news. This is the, the, the earliest and probably most significant passage that gives us that word euangelion, meaning gospel, good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Lift up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of God of Judah, Behold your God. Mark, Mark says from Lubbock, they'd say, Look at your God. Right? Look. This is your God who's come. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, with his arm, for his, his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend the flock like a shepherd, gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. This entire passage informs what's happening in this particular quotation. It's not just one verse, not just one idea. It continues. And anybody who sort of knew the Old Testament, anybody who knew the structure of it and he knew the story of it, would have been caught up in the idea that, that, that Matthew is saying and the early church is saying that what we're doing in this moment is we are witnessing the arrival of that voice that Isaiah talked about 800 years, 700 years ago. The arrival of that voice and the final arrival of the Lord into his city, to his people. Straight back. He brings power. He brings might. He brings glory with him. 
quoting that particular passage. Now, to explore this a little bit more in depth, take a look. This is the Old Testament passage. Matthew quotes from the the Greek. This is the Hebrew version. I mean, a translation of the Hebrew version. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, who is that voice crying in the wilderness? It's John. John the baptizer. And, And notice, we have here, prepare the way of the Lord. The divine name. It's all capitals. It's the unspeakable, ineffable name of God. We we approximate it today as the word Yahweh. But now this particular text is being applied to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord who is coming. Not just not just a powerful person, not just a king. But the very Lord God of the universe. What does he say? Behold your God. So John the Baptist is commissioned to go in the wilderness by the scripture, by the spirit, go in the wilderness, prepare the way. And he says, we ask further, who is this Lord? Well, it could be no other than Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the, the, the Nazarene, as he's called earlier. Jesus, the son of Mary, Jesus, the son of Joseph, same one, is now called by the very name of God, as the very name of God is being applied to him. This is a further, if you would, a further definition to what it means to call Jesus Emmanuel. All it had to mean at a certain level was this person, their very presence is just a reminder that God is with us. No. Matthew says something much deeper, much greater, more grand is happening with Jesus. In Jesus, the very Lord comes. The Lord comes to his people. The Lord comes in glory and power and might. It comes, as N.T. Wright says, personally, as a person. Well, that's just one. Here's another one. I, did, I never noticed this, actually, until recently. I was reading a dissertation by a student. I was asked to recommend it as a book to a series with T.N.T. Clark. And so I knew something about the topic. They asked me to do it, so I said, okay. So I read it. It's by a fellow named Scott Brazil. I had never noticed this before. But I think he's on to something. In the passage here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Never really sort of bound me. This particular passage, it comes in the context in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is talking about false teaching. It comes within a context where the scene of the story shifts to judgment day. And guess who the judge is? Jesus is the judge, right? Not, not just judging on a day-to-day basis, but kind of a, a final eschatological judge, if you will. We'd have to read the whole passage, and it's not just here in chapter 7, 21. The same idea is found in chapter 25, verse 11, in one of the most stark and disturbing parables. Well, not really even a parable. It's more than a parable. Jesus, in this passage, is featured as judge. 
a final judge, an eschatological judge. Now, if that's not true, that's crazy. Right? Anybody you know said, well, I'm the, I am the final, I'm the final judge. And I'm going to sit at the right hand of God. Anybody that you know that says that, you kind of go the other way, please. So it's a crazy claim. It's an audacious claim. A bold claim. If it's not true. But if it's true. And Matthew is wanting us to know that it's true. Here's, here's the passage. Here's the Greek. Kurie, kurie. My Greek students will rec- re- recognize that. Two vocative forms, back to back. The double vocative occurs 16 times in the Old Testament. Always in reference to the divine name. Always in a reference to the one true God. Once again, kurie, kurie addressed to Jesus. Not everybody that says to me, kurie, kurie, will enter. It's the divine name. It's either... Adonai Yahweh or Yahweh Adonai, depending upon, and these names could go back and forth in both Greek and in Hebrew. It means the same thing. Jesus' use of that as a self-reference, not just once in this gospel, but twice in this gospel, to any biblically literate audience would recognize that Jesus is taking the divine name and referencing himself. Wow. He's taking the titles of God and referencing himself and putting himself in the place of the judge that we are to stand before one day. Not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here's another passage, another episode. Marvelous passage. You've read it before, but just to be reminded of it. Jesus got into a boat with his disciples. There was a great storm on the boat. He was asleep in the boat, and they go and wake him up. And they say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, this is the red letter edition, by the way, red letter slide. This is what Jesus says, why are you afraid of you, little faith? Then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And, and his disciples say, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Well, if you've been tracking with the story, you know that he is Emmanuel, God with us. If you've been tracking with the story, you know that, 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 that John the, the baptizer came and prepared the way for the Lord who is to come. If you've been following, you realize... That he is the Lord, Lord, who is identified as the final eschatological judge. What sort of man is this? The disciples say. They're still trying to figure it out. They know he's a man. They can see him. They can, they, they can touch him. They can watch him eat. They can watch him sleep. What sort of man is this? Not just sort of any, any ordinary man. He's a man to be sure. But what sort of man is this? Well, if you go to the Old Testament and you begin looking, I want to suggest to you that this entire passage is an echo of Psalm 107. Go back and read it. Don't just read these verses. Read the whole of the psalm. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 
He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. It's a beautiful passage. Who did that? The Lord. The Lord God. Not just a king, not just a prophet, not just a good guy who's here to remind us that God is with us, but the Lord himself. Another passage, Psalm 65. Yahweh stills the roaring sea, roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of the signs. You make the going out in the morning and the evening. The going out of the morning and the evening is shout for joy. Ulrich Lutz, wonderful European scholar, died recently. Well, a few years ago. And uh, he has a, he, 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 if you look up any of his work, it's all about Matthew. Spent almost all of his life working with Matthew. And he makes this, this statement. Disciples, and, and, and he refers to the fact that here they don't call him, teacher, teacher, come. Can't you do something about this? Don't you care that we're perishing? They don't call him teacher. They call him Lord. Which teases out a little bit more the implications of what it means that Jesus is the Emmanuel. The Emmanuel. The God with us one. He is an occurrence of God. God is manifest in him. He is, in John's language, the word made flesh. God among us. Which is what the incarnation is about. Now, some scholars would, would want to deny that there's any incarnation of thinking at all in the Gospels until you get to John. John's the last one. I think they're wrong for lots of reasons. Richard Hayes, again, the fellow I referenced earlier, was with that library a few years ago, wonderful scholars. So when the disciples at the end of the episode asked the question, what sort of man is this? There's only one answer. What kind of answer are you going to give that question? And Matthew leaves it open. For his readers to figure out, to sort out, there's only one right answer. If you know the scriptures, if you know the Bible, if you know the history of the tradition, who is this? Important text. Wow. Healing of the paralytic. We've got to be quick. Take courage, Jesus says to a man who's paralyzed. He's, he's being uh, let down through the roof. I love the way Mark says it. They unroofed the roof above him. The owner of the place was not very happy. They unroofed the roof, let, Jesus, let this man down, the paralytic down, and in front of Jesus in a very crowded place. And Jesus takes a look and says, don't be afraid, your sins are forgiven. Right? And people around him, some of the Pharisees, some of the real religious people, you know, sometimes religious people get us all in trouble. This fellow's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. I can't believe he's saying that. We know that only God, God can forgive sins. This fellow's blaspheming. Then Jesus goes on to say, I want you to see that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the man, stand up, walk. And he took his pallet and he left. Demonstrating that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Not only, not only to do that, but also to do these, these amazing, uh, wonderful miracles as well the god with us one jesus has that authority he's doing only what god can do 
It is blasphemy. If anybody else does this, but not Jesus. Because Jesus is uniquely the Emmanuel. The judge, the coming judge. He is the courier, courier. He is the one for whom John has prepared the way. The very coming of God back to his people, back to Zion. Finally, just a few examples of this. Um, this prayer, it's kind of prayer-like at least. I want to suggest it is. In Matthew, there's a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and says, uh, Have mercy on me, Lord, O Courier, son of David. My daughter is severely uh, oppressed by a demon. I think this is the English uh, standard version. And there's another episode where, where uh, they came to the crowd. There was a man kneeling and he said, Courier. Have mercy on my son. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures. And sometimes he falls into water. Sometimes he falls into the fire. Please, have mercy on my son. And then there are two men, blind men, sitting beside the road. And they heard Jesus was coming. And so they say, Curie, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebukes them. Say, be silent. He's not interested in you. So he called out all the more, Lord, have mercy. And we know the story. Jesus pauses. He stops. He, he heals them. I want to suggest to you this kind of a pattern. What we find in the Old Testament, Old Testament prayers from the book of Psalms, Psalm 6, verses 2. Hanani Yahweh, have mercy on me, Lord. For I am faint. Heal me, Lord. My bones are in agony. There's a prayer using that same language. Have mercy on me, Lord. Another one. Hear, Lord. Shema Yahweh. Vachaneni. Have mercy. Listen, Lord, to these prayers and be merciful. Be my ozer. Be my help. In these ways. Another one. Have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I've sinned against you. Psalm 41. We see it over and over again. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call you all day long. And so we come back to the blind men. Two men beside the road. Not just one, but two. Two men beside the road calling out to Jesus. Both blind. Both outcast. Both uh, despondent about their condition. Both ridiculed by the people, and they stop. Lord, have mercy on us. Take a look at this one, because I think this is in Matthew's mind. Old Testament prayer, Psalm 123. I lift up, now notice, my eyes to you. To you who sit enthroned in heaven, as the eyes of the slave look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of the female slave look to the hand of the mistress, so our eyes look to you, Lord our God, till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. Saying it twice. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. For we have endured no end of contempt in this world because of our condition. What did these blind men need? They needed eyes to see. 
I think this psalm is in the backdrop of what Matthew is telling us in this particular story. So what do we have? We have something that's really quite remarkable. We have the cry of, of mercy, prayer language being addressed to Jesus by Canaanites, by, by Jews, by outcasts. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on me, Lord. Prayer language. And Jesus is remembered as having heard those requests and granted their prayer just like the psalmist desired. The God with us one is the one to whom we pray. In the, early, in the early church, the pattern of prayer was really twofold. They prayed to God the Father through Jesus, as we do, and they prayed directly to Jesus in some prayers. It's a very long study, important study that has been done on that particular in the earliest churches. So this prayer language now addressed to Jesus. In Matthew's terminology, that is entirely appropriate. Because Jesus is the Emmanuel, the God with us one. So we've looked at, um, we've looked at uh, the bookends, the statement that Jesus is the Emmanuel, God with us, and how Jesus at the very end of the gospel is, is described as the one. He says, says of himself, look, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. And now for some points from home. I know we need to get to that. Just a few things. A couple of things. Number one. Better Bible study begins with reading entire books, not just isolated verses. You've got to read the whole book. You can't just read the Emmanuel passage and be done with it. You need to continue to read and to see how the story begins to depict Jesus as the God with us one. The one who blasphemes according to religious folk. The one who is the Lord God who is to come, according to Isaiah. The one who will be the eschatological judge. That's our Jesus. Is that your Jesus? Is that your Jesus? Second thing about better Bible study. It continues. Better Bible study means allowing those passages that are unclear... To be explained by those that are clear. And so as we, if we're saying, well, I'm not really sure what this means. Keep reading. Because there's a good chance that what, as you continue reading, both in that book and other places, that what that person has said, which seems to be obscure and a little bit unclear, is going to be clarified. So again, reading lots of Bible is good for you when it comes to better Bible study. And there's a key in Matthew's gospel. There's a key passage in chapter 16. A little more than halfway through the gospel. It's the high water mark. It is the watershed moment where in this particular location, I think, this is the cave of Pan. It was Caesarea Philippi, which is today known as Banias. The cave of Pan, which was understood to be the gates of Hades, the gates of the underworld, where Jesus and his disciples stand. And he asks his disciples, who do people think I am? But then the more pressing question after that, who do you say that I am? What do we say? 
And the disciples got it right. They didn't get it fully right. They were still sort of understanding, coming to understand. But where they were at that moment, they were right about what they said. So this may be the most pressing question in of our lives. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Emmanuel is? What are you going to say? What are you going to think? How are you going to approach that? It's a pretty important question. And here are the bookends once again. On the one end, Emmanuel, God with us. That's Jesus. And there are various episodes, and we only touched several of them. There are more that we could have looked at. And at the very end, look, I am with you always. The whole book should be read between those two moments. And there's an interesting statement Jesus makes right in the middle of the book. Notice, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. What sort of person can say that? Wherever two or three gather in my name, I am present with them. I am present with them. Did you come today with the idea as we gather in the name of Jesus of saying, I am going to be in the presence of this Jesus Did you come thinking that? Did you imagine that? Is it just a habit? Or is it something else that brings us together? This Emmanuel passage forms the bookends of the entire book of Matthew. The most distinctive feature of the gospel. The entire book has got to be read with this idea that Jesus is God with us. The God with us one, the way I like to hyphenate it. I think that's a great way of putting it. Now, a long time ago, when I began thinking about this, people would say to me, you know, Jesus, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? It means for him to sit on the throne of your heart. And I began to think, you know, that's kind of a little place. Not very important. Because you know what? I am on my best day. I am dust. And what are you? You're dust. You came from the earth. You're going back to the earth. So sitting on the throne of my heart is not a very big place. It's not very elevated, not very high. Think about it in different terms. We're seeing now deeper into the universe than we have ever seen before. It's amazing. This James James Webb telescope. We're understanding that some of the things we thought were stars are in fact galaxies. Billions of light years away. Is Jesus Lord of that? Is he Lord of the galaxies? I was talking to a Christian leader the other day. You would know him. You'd probably know his name if I said it. He said, after these hearings this past week, he, he read about the hearings that were in Washington about UFOs and alien lives and those kind of things. And he read all that and he said, you know, my theology just can't grasp that. And I told him, mine can. Because he's Lord of the galaxies. If he's Lord in the Milky Way, he's also Lord of that galaxy 11 billion light years away. 
Some of you might remember when we did this. Came to church in our Sunday best. Some folks still do, right? Kathy and I belonged to a church for a while where shoes um, were optional. Some people wore them, some people didn't. Right? It's okay. But I often wonder, if we really thought we were going today to meet the Lord of the galaxies, the Lord of the universe, the final judge, the God who is coming again, if we were going to, how would we dress for that? If you were going to meet the president, how would you dress? If you were going to meet the queen, king of England, I start to say the queen of England, how would you dress? Wearing our Sunday best. Well, here's just a few things as a reminder. Who is this God with us? One, he is the Lord who returns in glory in person. He stands as our eschatological final judge on judgment day. He is the Lord of the wind and the waves. And by the way, also the galaxies. He is Lord who has authority to forgive sins. He is God with us. God with us. He is the Lord who hears our prayers. That's who he is. So is your God big enough? Is your Jesus big enough? That's what Matthew was trying to get over to us. That this, this one who was a man, who was known recently as he wrote, people actually knew Jesus. They had walked with men, heard him speak. That these claims that Jesus was making and the disciples are making, these audacious claims, in fact, we believe to be true. Because of who Jesus is and what he does. That's Emmanuel through the gospel of Matthew. Let me pray with you. I know we're about three minutes over. God, I thank, thank you for these people. I pray you will bless them. I pray that you will take the words of the gospel and that you will speak, them, uh, speak to them by the Spirit. You will address us in our needs as we've come today. Whether we are coping with grief and sorrow at loss or whether we are rejoicing. Whether it is morning or night, I pray that we will learn to shout for joy. And that we will be blessed through what Jesus has done in his name. That is how we pray. We give thanks. Amen. Thank you, my friends. Go in peace to go and serve the Lord, the Lord of the galaxies.